Thanks for listening to Downrange. The podcast is absolutely free. But if you want ad-free listening and early access to next week's episodes, subscribe to Tenderfoot Plus. For more information, check out tenderfootplus.com. Enjoy the episode. Downrange is sponsored by BetterHelp. Do you exchange gift cards, vacations, experiences, donations, or do you focus on enjoying time together? I know I do. Whether or not your family gives gifts during the holidays, you get to define how you give to yourself. And the holidays are a great time to do that. So whether it's by starting therapy, going easy on yourself during the tough moments, or treating yourself to a day of complete rest, remember to give yourself some love this holiday season. It's helpful for learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. It empowers you to be the best version of yourself, and it isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out the brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. In the season of giving, give yourself what you need with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash range today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash range. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Warning. This podcast contains adult content and recreations of battle scenes, including violence, gunshots, explosions, and graphic descriptions, which may be triggering for those with past trauma. Listener discretion is advised. From Tenderfoot TV and Telegraph Creative, this is Downrange. I'm your host, Remy Adeleke. So far, we've heard a lot of stories from the battlefield, but there are many jobs in the armed forces. For example, counterintelligence, medics, and translators. Today, I am pleased to introduce to you Kayla Williams, an Arabic interpreter, and at one time, the most forward deployed woman in the war in Iraq. On June 12, 1948, the Women's Armed Services Integration Act was signed by President Truman. After almost 200 years, women were granted the legal right to serve in all four branches of the U.S. Armed Forces. The law gave women like Kayla Williams the opportunity to achieve a successful career in the military. Today, only about 15% of the U.S. Army is female, so Kayla Williams' perspective is unique in more ways than one. Here's Kayla. It's 2003. 
And I'm in Baghdad walking around with the infantry as a woman translating for them. And they needed me and wanted me to be there almost more because I was a woman. Because I could talk to local women in a way that somebody who looks like my now husband would have a much harder time. We were 30 minutes from even any like helicopter quick reaction force. My platoon sergeant told me that I was the most forward deployed female soldier with conventional U.S. forces. I bet if you asked most veterans in active military where they were on 9-11, they'd remember vividly. It's one of those things that you just don't forget, and it changed the course of many lives. Kayla was in a linguistics classroom learning Arabic, and following 9-11, she was deployed to Iraq. I served on active duty in the Army for five years as an Arabic linguist. I did signals intelligence. There was not a strong tradition of military service in my family. I was raised by a single mom who was an artist. Because of her path, we were on food stamps occasionally as a kid. I definitely really felt that instability. And I was also, by the time I was an adult, acutely aware of the fact that the government had invested in me. It had helped my family stay afloat. So among the motivations that I had for later joining the military was that desire to repay that debt that I felt to society. So I had already gone to undergrad and gotten a bachelor's in English literature. I had had a couple post-college jobs. I had already bought a house. I had a steady boyfriend. I had a car, all the things you're supposed to be doing. And I felt like if I didn't do something like radically different, I was going to wake up 40 years old with a white picket fence in a minivan, 2.5 children, a golden retriever, and like not know how it had happened to me. The military was an opportunity that presented itself. I could get out of my rut. <laughs> I could really challenge myself. I could get money for graduate school. The Army was willing to pay me to learn a foreign language instead of me having to pay somebody else to give me new skills. So all those motivations came together and drove me to enlist. I did not choose my language. That was needs of the Army, random computer-generated number that landed me in Arabic instead of in Korean, which was the other like high-value language that a lot of folks with my level of scores were getting slotted into at that point. So it was just pure chance that I was sitting in an Arabic classroom and not a Korean classroom on 9-11. Everybody, sh <laughs> shut up. Shut up. Look, look what's going on. What? It was very surreal to watch the coverage of 9-11 on Arabic language TV, which was all we got in our classrooms. It was basically the CNN feed, but with Arabic announcers giving like a running translation of what was happening into Arabic. And our entire classroom immediately knew that we were going to war. There was no question in any of our minds of if, it was simply when. You guys look, that's the second plane. We're gonna go to war. This is going to be war. I assumed that I would have 
a strategic job. So I thought I would be stateside, that I would get an assignment basically at Fort Gordon, which is where Arabic linguists go if they're strategic, that or Fort Meade. I assumed I would be sitting in a room with no windows, just doing translation. When I got my assignment, though, I was assigned to the 101st Airborne Division, Air Assault, out of Fort Campbell, Kentucky. And that is a highly deployable unit that's part of 18th Airborne Corps. That's when I realized, oh, my military career is going to look pretty different than I might have envisioned. You can plan for your career in the military, but those plans change during times of war. You do what you have to do to serve your country. What became clear when we went to Iraq was how much, at the time that I went through, we were trained on modern standard Arabic. That's not how regular people talk. It's like growing up speaking the Queen's English and then getting dropped into the bayou in Louisiana. I would meet locals and have this very like flowery, high-level language. Like, Good afternoon, kind sir. Would you happen to have any weapons in the local area? And they're like, what? <laughs> and eventually I got to the point where I'm like, hey, any weapons around here? It took a lot of time to flip my brain into Iraqi dialect and understand them. Most of them could understand me if they had any sort of formal education in particular, but I couldn't understand them until I learned the dialect a lot better. I was part of the initial invasion of Iraq in March of 2003. So my training was in signals intelligence. I was supposed to be doing intercept and direction finding on enemy communications. If you can imagine, you know what it's like when you're driving down like a country road and you're sitting the seek button on your car radio, like looking for anything to listen to because you're bored and you're just getting a lot of static. So that was my actual job. At the same time, there was a huge need in those early stages for Arabic speakers to translate for the infantry. And so I went out with the infantry to translate between them and the local people. Hey guys, she doesn't know anything. There's nothing here. All right, on to the next. Let's go. Translation is a specific skill set that is different than what I was trained to do, but it's the army, it's war, you do what you need to do. Kayla became a decorated member of the U.S. Army, but she still faced challenges similar to those faced by women who served 50 years ago. This was also the era of you go to war with the army you have, if you remember that charming phrase. And because I was a woman and women were technically barred from direct ground combat arms jobs and units, I was not issued plates for my flak vests. There weren't enough to go around. And as a woman, since I wouldn't be in combat, I didn't get any. But then as an Arabic speaker, I was out there on combat foot patrols in Baghdad with the infantry. Eventually somebody realized I should probably have at least a front plate for my flak vest. So I'd get one from somebody who was not going out that day. I think really shows some of the reasons that policy changed later. When I was active duty, and it hasn't changed that much, women were about 15% of the army. And I think the stats that I saw later of folks who deployed women were about 10%. One, two, three, 
it varies by job. So there were no women in the infantry at that point, but women were maybe 30% of my military intelligence platoon. But definitely there were times when I showed up to spend time with a unit that some really junior guys who were relatively new in the army said that they had never seen a woman in uniform before. They're like, you're the first female soldier I've ever seen in my life. Am I allowed to talk to you? <laughs> yeah, I went with the infantry door to door, asking folks if they had weapons, asking if there were bad guys around or members of the former regime. The people who were willing to come up and talk to me, they all wanted to tell me how they had suffered under the Ba'ath regime and about their hopes for a better future with freedom and democracy. It was just fascinating to see how the Iraqi army had in many places really just disappeared. We stumbled upon an armored personnel carrier in a neighborhood of Dura in Baghdad where there were piles of uniforms and I was so curious at the time, like, did they run off in their underwear? Or did they have civilian clothes with them? Like, how did that happen? But they just left their uniforms and melted away. My training definitely was to do intercept and direction finding on enemy communications. That was my entire training. Before I even deployed, I had a more nuanced thought about it. I felt this obligation to deploy my contract, my commitment, my oath, and to my fellow soldiers that I had this skill that I hoped could be useful, but also to innocent Iraqi people. And I felt that I had an obligation to do the best I could to protect, be compassionate and empathetic towards that part of the Iraqi population. I will say that that perspective was sorely tested the longer we were there as the insurgency picked up. You know, we went from on our way into the country, little kids actually did give me flowers. And then towards the end of my deployment on a convoy, my weapon is loaded. It's still unsafe, but I'm scanning for vehicles that might be a threat. And there was one that was swerving wildly in the median next to me, probably just trying to get back on the highway. This guy's just scared. He doesn't know what's going on, but at the time looked very threatening. I'm actively raising my weapon. I am prepared to fire at the driver. Oh my God, look at him. And the passenger turns to look at me and it's a 10 year old kid and I about lost it. I could have just shot this kid and it would have been fine under the rules of engagement for me to engage this vehicle that is behaving in an erratic and possibly threatening manner, trying to get in the middle of our convoy. But it was hard to not drift into thinking of, of Iraqis as the other, all of them as being the enemy when you're in that stressful environment and you're dealing with it just nonstop for months and months and months with no end in sight. It's more varied than you probably imagine. Southern Iraq was desert. And then in, I spent time in northwestern Iraq up on a mountain. It snowed up way up on the mountain. There were kids up in the northern part of the country who had like red hair and green eyes. 
there was more diversity than I expected. I think, you know, I vaguely assumed that everyone there was an Arab Muslim. Probably most Americans know a little bit more by now about Kurds and some of the differences, but I'd never heard of Yazidis before I got up to the uh, Sinjar Mountain in Iraq. We did not get solid briefings on the differences between Sunni and Shia. We didn't understand a lot about the tribal dynamics. There were so many things that we just <laughs> just rolled into the country without a solid understanding of and, and blew stuff up. Downrange will be back after this short break. Downrange is sponsored by BetterHelp. Do you exchange gift cards, vacations, experiences, donations, or do you focus on enjoying time together? I know I do. Whether or not your family gives gifts during the holidays, you get to define how you give to yourself. And the holidays are a great time to do that. So whether it's by starting therapy, going easy on yourself during the tough moments, or treating yourself to a day of complete rest, remember to give yourself some love this holiday season. It's helpful for learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. It empowers you to be the best version of yourself and it isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out the brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. In the season of giving, give yourself what you need with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com range today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash range. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Now, back to our story. So this was when we were in the Dura neighborhood of Baghdad, and I was regularly going out with the Delta Company guys on various missions. And one day, the call came in that we were going out on a quick reaction force mission, a QRF. All right, everybody, we got a call. Let's go, let's go. Pack up your shit. Let's move. Get oh, no, no. Let's hey, go. Get the truck on that one. Get the two. Yeah. They drove up to where my team was, and I hopped in the Humvee, and we headed over there. It was a neighborhood we'd been in before. I knew the streets, but it felt different immediately. Everybody was, was calm. People were waving us around blind corners. Children weren't talking to us and asking for water or, or money or anything. Everything was just felt tense. We got there and there had been an explosion of unexploded ordnance in a location where we knew there was UXO. A piece of the unexploded ordnance went off and injured a number of American soldiers who had already been evacuated by the time we showed up. And three local civilians had been injured. 
and I translated while we provided medical care to them, kind of going between the three men who had been injured and trying to help soothe and reassure them and also being pulled away periodically to try to talk to family members and explain to them what was going on and explain to the crowd what was happening and try to soothe the tense situation. Hey, grab that GPS! Hey, we need to get an IV started. Yes, sir. I got it. William, where are you? I got it. I got it. I have some memories of it that are very visual and clear. Like remembering watching a fly land on a cut on a man's head that was still bleeding and thinking that the fly was being disrespectful and then recognizing that that was an absurd thing to think. When a man realized that as part of treating him, his clothes had been cut away and that his genitals were exposed. And when he realized I was a woman, he was embarrassed and was trying to cover them. And I was reassuring him that that, that really didn't matter. It was not the thing to worry about right now. Remembering the man who did not make it and ended up dying on the scene, calling out to God, and thrashing and throwing up in a soldier's mouth as the soldier was trying to give him CPR. They couldn't get a IV started because his veins were already collapsing at that point, I'm sure. It was also a moment when I um, had one of the first experiences of my life of like, recognizing physical anxiety and then recognizing that I had the ability to control it. So I was sitting there, I'm trying to help while we're doing providing medical care, I'm trying translating. I started to breathe faster, like I was getting anxious and my heartbeat must have been going up too, but I was starting to breathe faster. And a soldier next to me just looked at me hard and I like recognized it and slowed my breathing down and like got myself back to a calm state. And I remember being so impressed by the medic who was on scene who stayed totally focused in what he was doing. He was treating his patient and he was laser focused on that. And the guys treating the the other patient where I was were like screaming that they needed help. And he was like, you do that, I'm doing this. Like he didn't get flustered, he didn't lose focus, he was totally calm. All the infantrymen were totally focused on performing their roles. If their job was to to watch their sector, they did that. And I was remember being so impressed with that, like focus and calmness in this totally chaotic situation. My memory of the moments of providing medical care are relatively quiet, interspersed with screaming from the injured man. People yelling like, hold his legs, hold his legs, like hold him still, we have to get an IV started, hold him still. I don't remember there being a lot of background noise, which doesn't mean it wasn't there. I could have just been so like tunnel visioned into my moment that I don't remember it. But at the time, the family asked what are you gonna do for us? And under Islamic law, there's a dia, a blood debt. And like, oh, we can't do anything. Like there's nothing. Later there was paperwork and you could, you know, pay restitution or provide some sort of compensation to ease the suffering of a family when an accidental death has been caused. But this was so early on, like that did not exist. And to look at this woman and be like, there's nothing, we're not gonna do anything for you was gutting. 
what sort of instability and uncertainty were we abandoning her and her small children to? It was long, it was exhausting. I didn't remember to eat or drink anything the whole day. I felt so guilty that we couldn't save the man who died. Even though the docs later were like, if he had gotten that severe of an injury outside of an emergency room in the US, he still likely would have died. Understanding that intellectually is not the same thing as as being able to not feel guilt for not being able to save someone. And these were people who could have been actual enemies and were not American citizens, but this is what you do. It's the right thing to do. So I drove all the time. I did most of the driving from Kuwait to Baghdad and then from Baghdad to Mosul and beyond. We got sent out to Sindra Mountain to join an LPOP, a listening post observation post, where there's a, a group of artillery guys, so a fire support team that specifically did combat observation and lasing. We drive to a certain part of the road and then they're like, okay, we're like, okay, now now what? On the radio, where, where do we go now to join you? They're like, up. We're like, what do you mean? They're like, no, just go straight up the mountain. There's no road, just drive straight up the mountain. Okay. Up. William, I got it. I got, yeah, I know. Oh, 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 see, okay. I got it. It's all Shit. good. So we're driving straight up the mountain, and first the NCO and the team's like, yeah, uh, oh, I'm, I'm going to. Uh, oh, crap. I'm just getting out. Going to ground guide you. I'm you know, go over it. Just to make sure we make it up safe. It's a Humvee. It's made to go over things. So he gets out and he's walking. Then the other guy who's in the back seat. All right, all right, all right. Whoa. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh. I think I'm going to get out, too. <laughs> you guys are being ridiculous. Yeah, you get out. <laughs> For no reason other than that he was afraid. So he got out and walked, and I'm driving, and it was so steep that there were points where the front two tires of the Humvee were, like, lifting off the ground, and I was legit convinced that it was just going to flip over backwards and, like, roll down the hill and kill me. Completely terrifying. There were times that the tires just wouldn't grip and would slip. We finally get up there to join this other team. I get out, I'm like shaking because it was that fright. I I cannot tell you the extent to which I genuinely believed that the Humvee was gonna flip over backwards. One of the guys like, hey, look, that one's got boobs. I'm like, oh God. As the only woman up there, there's like eight guys, I'm the only woman. They saw very clearly that the two guys on my team did not have the courage to stay in the Humvee, but that I did it. That was validating. There were moments that like drove home that I was not just one of the guys, but it took a long time to kind of tease that apart. We were like right on the border with Syria, close to the Turkish border, doing like basically overwatch on the border. And the locals would come up and spend time with us. They were Yazidis. They told me a lot about their culture, their place in Iraqi society, their fears for what would happen if the U.S. left and fears that ended up being completely justified and validated. Yazidi women were taken as sex slaves by ISIS. So everything that they warned me about, uh, as far as I know, came to pass. You know, speaking of guilt about not being able to stop things or change things or, or save people. They were really generous. They're farmers, uh, shepherds. They would bring peppers and onions and eggplants and eggs and butter and goat yogurt. In some ways, 
It was like the most idyllic part of my deployment to be in this totally austere, do not get me wrong. We had no electricity, we had no running water. For me to bathe was two one and a half liter bottles of water, but nobody was trying to kill us. The locals actively wanted us to be there. In that way, it was really pleasant part of my experience when things were kind of steady state and relatively stable in a lot of ways. The next site, we moved to like the other side of the mountain. There were some additional soldiers who had another like intel mission. And there's a guy that we, we called Jimmy. He may have called himself Jimmy, but Jimmy the Iceman, he would come up, he would rent a taxi for the day, load it up with consumer goods and sell them to us. With like different flavors of Fanta. I grew up with access to orange and grape, but they also had green apple flavored. Oh, black currant. They had currant flavored Fanta. The only time I used my bayonet in Iraq, by the way, was to chop up the blocks of ice that we would buy to put soda on it. He kept bringing me dresses and wanting me to buy <laughs> dresses and nightgowns. I'm like, no, that's not happening. He once asked, like, how much money did I earn as a soldier? And like, here's this guy who's trying to make, you know, I don't know, $20, $50 in a day selling us stuff that he hauled up the side of a mountain in his rented taxi. And I did not want him to get the impression that we're rolling in dough and like jack up his prices significantly. I started explaining like, here's how much I make. I want to say at the time my base pay was like $1,200 a month. I see his eyes get all big and I'm like, wait, wait, wait. But I have to pay for my house back home. Even though I'm here, like I still have a housing payment and it's $400 a month and I still have a car payment. Then I still have to pay my electric bill and I still have to pay insurance. And you know, I'm listing off all these things that I still had to pay for. Looking back, I don't know if he was messing with me or not. He's like, oh, here, have a soda on me. <laughs> Gives me a free Fanta. <laughs> I did not have any training in how to do interrogation, but once when I was in Mosul for the last few months of my deployment, there was a facility there where folks were detained. They called it the cage. They asked me to assist on a couple occasions. Once I was just there visiting and it was the night that Uday and Kuse were killed. They rounded everybody up that night. And so I'm helping like process people out. But then later they asked me to assist because the woman who usually did interrogations, who was trained in doing them, was on mature leave or something. So they asked me to fill in. It was awful. They were flicking lit cigarettes at these guys. They would have them hooded and strip them naked and then remove the hood so that the first thing they saw was me as a woman. Then they wanted me to say like sexually degrading things to them to try to humiliate them. It felt so awful and wrong. And I, in the moment, did not know what to do. I kind of sat through it, said some of the things they asked me to say in Arabic. And when it was over, I went up to the guy in charge and said like, I think you're violating the Geneva Conventions. I'm never participating in this again. And he's like, okay. I said, anybody that came in here innocent leaves a terrorist if you treat them this way. Like one of the things that I have to sit with is that like I protested to him and I said, I wouldn't do it, but I did not have the integrity to take it to the next level and report. Like the soldier who reported what was happening at Abu Ghraib. I didn't have his level of integrity. And that's something that I sit with. And I've had to try to 
to work through what that means for who I am as a person. And part of what I did to try to make up for it was to tell the story, to tell the story in my book and to, to tell the story now and to tell the story when I've spoken to try to help folks understand the risk of this. It's incredibly important that you have clear standards, that you have checks and balances, that you make sure that folks get breaks relatively often, that they're not doing this all the time. The excuse that the leader on the ground then had is like, oh, well, they do it to us. They would do it to us. That's not the standard we hold ourselves up against. We want to be the leaders in this. We want to be the country that everybody looks to and says, that's the way it should be done. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. So when I came home from the war, like I did not want my family there when I got there. I was not, I did not think I would be in a position of being like emotionally ready to see them. So nobody was there to greet me when I got home. The weather was the same as when we left. We got back in January, I had left in January. And I was like, did I, did I leave? Did this even happen? Did I dream at all? <laughs> like it just felt like this weird gap in the way that time usually progresses forward. And then, you know, getting home and just a shower, like a real shower. That was the best, that was the best thing. It's just to have to take a long, hot shower, and get pizza and beer. That was, <laughs> those were my top priorities when I got home. Oh, this is amazing. I experienced some challenges adjusting that I think are pretty common. So from maybe somewhere between three and six months, I was really short-tempered. I was really reactive to certain noises. I had trouble sleeping a lot of times. I would wake up not remembering my dreams, but like totally drenched in sweat and like tangled in my sheets. But for me, these faded within six months. So not PTSD. The way I try to explain it to folks who don't understand it is when I was in Iraq, being hyper vigilant, being hyper alert to my surroundings was absolutely beneficial for my survival, right? Like could keep me alive to notice any potential threat. And it just took time for my body and my brain to dial my reaction back down to normal and being cut off in traffic in the US is not deadly. My reaction just needs to be to break, not to wanna to shoot someone. The man I ended up marrying, my, my now husband, he sustained a penetrating traumatic brain injury in Iraq from a roadside bomb. And he developed post-traumatic stress disorder that did not fade within six months. In fact, it got, it got steadily worse and it was associated with major depressive disorder. So this, you know, really, really awful set of conditions. We were not yet married, we were dating for me, my own reintegration was complicated by trying to figure out how to help him. Like I was becoming a caregiver, but this was way back in like 2004. People weren't using the word caregiver yet. I'm just in this moment of trying to figure out how to help my boyfriend, who's also a fellow soldier who was really screwed up. And 
that was hard. The feeling like I couldn't deal with my own problems because his were so much worse. And I had to just like, put mine on the back burner, stomp them down and bury them and be focused on helping him. And I think my reintegration was also made harder because as a woman, I felt invisible as a veteran. Groups of us would go out to get a beer, to celebrate that we came home alive. And the bouncer would say like, somebody get these guys around. And the bar- bartender would take that seriously and like give the guys a free round and just assume that that the women were wives or girlfriends or, or whatever. Didn't assume that we had just gotten back from the same combat zone. Military guys are more recognizable. They've got the haircut, they've got the posture. You can pick them out of a lineup like nine out of 10 times. I don't have the same look. And that carried through not just civilians, but even other soldiers or, or other veterans once I was off active duty and trying to do things with groups of veterans. And they asked my husband, oh, where did you deploy? What did you do? And and my husband is like, oh, you know, my my wife was in the army too. And they're like, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh. And straight back to him. The feeling that I had to prove myself and to prove that I deserved to be in the room as a veteran all over again, like I often did in the military, was exhausting and frustrating and led me to do a decent amount of work on advocacy, trying to rescind the women in combat policy, doing some work on don't ask, don't tell repeal, working also on improving care for wounded warriors. My experiences of struggling during the transition process and beyond, that definitely influenced the path that I took. And for me, now looking back, I think that that was absolutely part of healing for me trying to advocate on behalf of others, trying to draw on my negative experiences to demand better for others was a healing experience for me and doing it as part of a community of other veterans. I ultimately feel as if I have experienced post-traumatic growth where I am a more compassionate person. I am more connected to my broader community not despite having been to war, but because I went to war. I am proud to have served. I would do it again. I came out on the other side, a stronger and more compassionate person who's more dedicated to trying to make the world a better place. We appreciate Kayla for sharing her story with us and for the advocacy work that she has done to assist other soldiers. If you're curious to hear more from Kayla, you could check out her book, Love My Rifle, More Than You, Young and Female in the U.S. Army. Again, I'm Remy Adelake, and this is Downrange. Join us next time for another story of heroism and action. Thanks for listening. Downrange is a production of Tenderfoot TV and Telegraph Creative. Our hosts are former Navy SEAL Remy Adelake and former Army Ranger Rich Chapa. Our senior producers are Meredith Stedman and Mike Rooney. From Tenderfoot TV, executive producers are Donald Albright and Payne Lindsay. From Telegraph Creative, executive producers are Cliff Sims and Darren McBurnett. 
From Extreme Concepts, executive producer is Landon Ash. Produced by Eric Quintana, Tracy Kaplan, and Jamie Albright. Dramatization casting and directing by Greg Cooler. Sound designed by Cooper Skinner. Mix and mastered by Cooper Skinner. Original music by Makeup and Vanity Set. Additional production by Christina Dana. Marketing and branding by Telegraph Creative. This episode features the song Fire and Smoke, written by Benjamin Rubino, Bo Steele, and Stacey Stavola, performed by the band Steele, courtesy of Fire River Records. This episode features voice acting by Suhaila L. Atar Young, Ryan Jones, Kevin Stilwell, Cooper Skinner, and Nicholas Tikoski. Special thanks to Oren Rosenbaum and Grace Royer from UTA, Ryan Nord, Jesse Nord, and Matthew Papa from the Nord Group, Beck Media and Marketing. Visit us at downrangepod.com or on social media at Downrange Podcast. Thanks for listening. Whiskey and cold, fire and smoke. Downrange is sponsored by BetterHelp. Do you exchange gift cards, vacations, experiences, donations, or do you focus on enjoying time together? I know I do. Whether or not your family gives gifts during the holidays, you get to define how you give to yourself. And the holidays are a great time to do that. So whether it's by starting therapy, going easy on yourself during the tough moments, or treating yourself to a day of complete rest, Remember to give yourself some love this holiday season. It's helpful for learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. It empowers you to be the best version of yourself, and it isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out the brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. In the season of giving, give yourself what you need with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash range today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash range.